Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Vincent Shen, and it's Tuesday, September 12th. We're going to hit a couple stories making headlines this week before providing an update on Starbucks. Joining me via Skype for this retail and consumer roundup is SeniorFool.com contributor Asit Sharma. Great to have you back, Asit. Great to be here, Vince. Thanks a lot for having me back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, A lot of fools here at HQ have been chatting and kind of debating over uh, our first story, and I wanted to very quickly get your thoughts on it, too. So, Amazon has announced that the company is looking to open a second headquarters outside of its home base in Seattle. So, the founder and CEO, Jeff Bezos, he started the company there, I think, 20-some years ago, but Amazon is outgrowing its campus in the city. So, they already have, I read that they already have uh, an estimated 33 buildings and 10% of all the commercial real estate downtown in Seattle. So beyond space constraints, there's also the challenge of competing for labor, um, and they need thousands of developers and engineers to kind of sustain the growth at the company. Um, so Asa, what do you think? I've heard a few people actually point to your area, uh, Raleigh-Durham, and kind of the Research Triangle area as a great candidate for the new headquarters, um, and that would be right in your neck of the woods. And yours too, Vince, actually Washington, D.C., the northern Alexandria, northern Virginia area is also top of list. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Amazon's going to have an enormous impact on any area uh, you know, when it comes to. They are looking to um, hire about 50,000 workers over the next couple of decades, and they're going to spend $5.5 billion bucks, uh, their presence in the, the new market. On their Seattle campus, they have 40,000 employees. And by their estimate, um, they have added $38 billion to Seattle's economy uh, between 2010 and 2016. Wow. So Seattle is a huge city to begin with mm-hmm. relative to some smaller metropolitan areas. You take that impact and put it on, let's say, a Raleigh-Durham or a Nashville uh, or Northern Virginia, it has a very long-term impact uh, and sort of changes the nature of how a city uh, of that size will do business. There's lots of infrastructure that will have to be built. Um, they have taken up 8 million square feet of space in Seattle alone, as you mentioned. So I think that Amazon is going to provoke, and it already has provoked, a frenzy of competition among hungry cities. I think it is a great benefit for any city that can win their business, but there are downsides too. Uh, here in Raleigh-Durham, we've got just a very laid-back environment. We have the Research Triangle Park, great universities, uh, the coast, the mountains. Uh, and, and you can see how, while Amazon's money would be beneficial and would certainly help our economic growth, it would also uh, we'd have to absorb thousands of new workers. Um, traffic patterns would change, uh, which is always a concern. So there are upsides and downsides to Amazon landing in any one city. But my last point on this, um, New York Times, uh, they put their sort of quasi-study out, starting with 25 metro areas, and have whittled it down to Denver, saying that's really the only place. If you look at all of Amazon's criteria, including the need for ready transportation in the city, there's really only one city in the, the country that perfectly fits um, every criteria, and that happens to be Denver. So East Coast would lose out in that case. I'm surprised. I, I feel like um, just in terms of 
uh, location, um, obviously there are the criteria that Amazon mentioned, uh, and those include, by the way, uh, that it be in a metropolitan region with about a million people. Uh, it's a walkable area, close to major universities, with a with a qualified workforce, and within 45 minutes of an international airport. But just in terms of the location, um, an East Coast or closer to the East Coast location would allow the company to kind of straddle the U.S. Uh, with the two headquarters, whereas with between Seattle and Denver, they'd still be pretty close and kind of concentrated in that area. Um, but there's also been comments from uh, some of the public officials, even in Seattle, saying that the growth that they've seen, uh, with uh, uh, driven by companies like Amazon, has been great. But at the same time, it's to really put their infrastructure to the test. You know, even for a larger city, any area, 50,000 new employees, this amount of development will kind of uh, definitely put some pressure on the local governments, but they're fighting for this opportunity because of the $5 billion of investment that uh, Amazon will put into the region over a period of about 15 years. And city these cities are likely to offer you know, pretty significant property and income tax breaks and other incentives as part of their proposals. So the proposals to Amazon are due actually October 19th, and the company's expected to make a decision, I think next year. So the first phase of the build-out for up to about 1 million square feet of office space in this new location will be finished as early as 2019. Um, so we'll definitely come back to the story once the decision is finalized and we have more details. But if you have thoughts on where the next location for the Amazon headquarters uh, will be, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. So for our next story, uh, we have another company also generating buzz in the news this week, and that's Nordstrom. So the luxury department store um, is going to be welcoming shoppers in West Hollywood, California to their new uh, retail experience. So it's a new store called Nordstrom Local, um, and that's supposed to open on October October 3rd. And what makes this specific location so special is the fact that you won't find you know rack after rack of clothing and accessories there. And so while a normal uh, Nordstrom store is usually well over 100,000 square feet, this Nordstrom local would be just 3,000 square feet, so a much, much smaller footprint. And as a result, it'll be more service-focused. So they'll offer things like beer and wine, manicures, alterations, and dressing rooms where personal stylists can help put together uh, outfits for their customers. So I said for some time, Nordstrom has been kind of the, the the cream of a very difficult crop among the major department stores. Um, they're still managing to expand and open new full-line Nordstrom locations in addition to their Nordstrom rack stores. But uh, a lot of competitors have actually uh, closed stores or consolidated their brick-and-mortar footprint. Uh, what do you think is kind of going on going through management's minds as they roll out kind of an experimental you know, retail experience like this? Sure. Obviously, they want to keep up. Everyone can see that. The trends for shopping, as we've discussed many times on the show, moving away from brick and mortar, more towards online ordering. How do you survive and continue to open new stores? One way you can do it is to forge a different and stronger relationship with your customers. So if you feel extremely loyal to Nordstrom and have a deeper bond than just going up to a rack and looking for a discount, uh, you might then be persuaded to order regularly, frequently, uh, stop in at your local store to, to pick up your clothes and maybe pick up something else when you get there. So part of this thrust is to make it extremely enticing to do business with Nordstrom. And I, I, I got to admit, like, I can get manicures, but the thought of going into a small space without having to look at any physical merchandise, maybe grab a beer and thumb through some choices, 
hey, why not? It's a bright idea. There's something else behind this that it's not quite as visible to customers. This type of innovation in retail is also data-driven. Mm-hmm. So some of the tools that Nordstrom will use when you go into Nordstrom Local will actually be on screens. Your stylist will walk you through certain choices, and, and you may click or, or, or on a touch screen, um, punch some choices in. The company is going to then obtain data from that, and they're going to get a deeper insight into how you make your fashion choices, which is more uh, useful to them than just studying patterns from you buying clothes in store and, and taking them home. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the thing with this is for Nordstrom and what they're offering here is kind of this experience uh, to get people out the door and potentially visit for with the many various services they offer. Um, and the industry focus team, we recently recorded a special industry focus 101 episode. And the trend that I talked about in the consumer retail space was experiential retail. And it's just happened to be very good timing um, before this Nordstrom local announcement. But there are many, many more examples out there. And I said before the show, you shared with me some very cool examples from the home improvement world and also with an apparel brand. And the big thing that jumped out to me now is like virtual reality potentially is becoming part of the shopping experience now. Can you tell us a little bit more um, about what's going on with Lowe's and Vans? Lowe's, surprisingly, your do-it-yourself hardware store is on the forefront of experiential shopping. If you live in Massachusetts, maybe near Framingham, they have a store in which there's a dedicated room to virtual reality, do-it-yourself learning. You go into the room, put on a pair of goggles, and you're handed a controller. And with that experience, you can actually work through an entire do-it-yourself project. Uh, Myself, I'm not a very mechanical guy. And I hesitate to do some uh, mid-level projects around the house because Mm -hmm. I'm scared I'll mess them up. And then it'll end up costing more money, um, end up costing my wife grief. (laughs) So I think if I had this opportunity locally to go into a store, um, put on a headset of virtual reality goggles with a controller and then work through a retiling project and everything that I'm messing up is virtual, that would give me the confidence to go through with the project. And you see how ingenious this is on Lowe's part because if they can get these threshold level people like me to become do-it-yourselfers, they have increased that lifelong sale per customer and found a new base of revenue. So I'm very intrigued by that idea for one. Have you seen one of these by any chance? I think they've just got one on the East Coast. No, I have not been able to visit a store with this, but I definitely see uh, what you mean in terms of kind of driving, uh, increasing the lifetime value of a customer. Because I can imagine an example, I'm probably similar as you in terms of my experience with you know home improvement projects and things like that. I am not going to pursue something uh, too, too big. But if I were to go to a store like this, have this experience, uh, experience with this kind of virtual reality simulation, get a much uh, better idea of what it entails, you know, and then I decide, you know, I'm going to give this shot. All of a sudden, I'm buying all the supplies at Lowe's, and then I might need special tools to finish this project. I'm getting those at Lowe's as well, and all of a sudden, uh, it's just kind of uh, what becomes a tentative thing that might go to a contractor instead becomes a huge purchase with the company. Sure, and just one more quick note on that: you can bet that Lowe's is also collecting data, uh, just as Nordstrom is going to collect data. So if they see that both Vince and Osset are trying to learn how to install Windows. They're going to push that, <laughs> do it your, those do-it-yourself workshops in their stores. 
and make money off of that. I think it's a very bright idea. Sure. So the next example that I was um, interested in discussing today is House of Vans. I myself am a Chuck Taylor guy. I love to wear Converse, uh, but Vans is a similar brand which has been around for a long time and has a second wave of cachet with the younger folks, sort of the skateboard BMX crowd. And so Vans is interesting in that its reach is primarily through uh, large retailers. We've seen those, uh, some of them going bankrupt. Uh, how do you sell in a world like this? Again, it's forging a relationship with the customer. So Vans retail concept is called House of Vans. It's got a really beautiful flagship store in London, and it has several across the world. Um, there's one in Chicago. Brooklyn has a House of Vans store. And the idea is to take 30 to 40,000 square feet and on a multi-level store, have a different experience on each level, uh, sometimes very tenuously related to the actual product. So uh, House of Vans in London has one floor that's for art installations. It has an event space. It has several bars and cafes spread through the area. It's got a level, and they call these tunnels. Um, they, there's a tunnel of just concrete for uh, boarding, skateboarding, and sporting events. So what I could see, I haven't been to physically to the store, but from what I can see, um, looking at the pictures on the web, there's very little physical product there at all. Here again, if you have these experiences, you feel more loyal to a certain brand. Uh, personally, and I know a lot of our listeners are like this, if I find a brand I like, I tend to be fairly loyal if it's, if it's well-priced. So Vans will plant that impulse for you to have a great time at one of these house of Vans, and then later buy online or maybe walk into a physical store uh, and, and buy their product. Sure. Um, I, I want to bring this back uh, a little bit to Nordstrom and draw some parallels from those examples that you provided with Lowe's and Vans and some of the uh, specific services that they're offering. So the company press release includes a comprehensive list of what customers can do at this Nordstrom local. And you know, for example, we already mentioned the personal stylist, the manicures, the tailoring services, but also you can buy online, pick up in store, and customers can pick up the same day at Nordstrom local if they order before 2 p.m., uh, which is pretty impressive. Uh, there's curbside pickup, so your t- tailored outfit or your in-store pickup order can be brought out to you as you wait in your car. Um, they also do easy returns, so basically anything you buy online or at a full-line Nordstrom store can go directly to Nordstrom Local instead for a return. And the last thing I'll mention is their style board. So this is a, more of a tech-focused service but that basically allows stylists to put together a digital catalog or lookbook with items personalized for a customer. And then the customer can purchase the items from that style board and also communicate with stylists through that app. And I list out all these specific services because they remind me so much of initiatives that physical retailers are testing and implementing, expanding you know, all over the country to, to differentiate their stores. And you think about, for example, the first one, in-store pickup is available now at most major retailers and not so major ones as well. And it's just all part of the omni-channel strategy. The curbside grocery service was a big push for Walmart and even Amazon when they were testing with some of the retail concepts. And technology has been a huge lever for apparel companies like Urban Outfitters, and they have stores that are similar to the Vans, um, House of Vans, 
And uh, technology is growing super quickly in terms of uh, applications and usage in the restaurant sector, too. So in the past couple of years on, on Industry Focus, we've discussed on multiple occasions other companies experimenting with some of these ideas, like Nordstrom, like Lowe's. And even the focus on small format stores has been seen with Whole Foods and Target and a lot of other of the uh, larger retailers. And uh, what you mentioned in terms of the connection that it offers uh, and the loyalty that it helps to drive with customers, um, I think that is a big driving force behind all this. You create a unique kind of fulfilling experience that will be enough to convince shoppers to make the trip and see it for themselves. And then even if they don't buy anything at the store, like in the case of Nordstrom Local, they're not going to carry much inventory, if at any at all. Um, that won't move the needle for this company. You know, Nordstrom had $15 billion of revenues in the past in the past year, but the connection that the company hopes to forge with you means that when you're ready to buy, whether you're on mobile, whether you're online, in store, or wherever it may be, hopefully it's enough of an impression that they can kind of count on you as a customer. Um, our last uh, exa- our last story here with Starbucks again another case where they've kind of driven this experience with their stores that kind of recreated the European coffee shop experience. Um, but we wanted to provide an update for the company uh, in that we're approaching about six months now since the founder Howard Schultz stepped down as CEO of the company and he passed the reins on to Kevin Johnson, who's formerly the COO. Um, and I won't speak too much about the stock price since half a year is not much time for any CEO I think to leave their mark on a company, especially one this large. But uh, investors were, weren't as happy with the latest quarterly results. Shares did trade down about 10% due to some uh, reduced guidance and lower than expected growth. But I said, you've been following this company for some time. And when people talk about things like market oversaturation for Starbucks and uh, limiting or shrinking growth opportunities, what do you think shareholders should be focused on going forward? One of the things shareholders should be focused on is Starbucks' ability to divorce itself from a goal that it created. So there's a, a mini monster in every Starbucks earnings report, and that is the U.S. comparative sales. So how <laughs> yeah. did stores in the U.S. do versus last year's comparable quarter? And Starbucks had an incredible streak. I think it went over 25 consecutive quarters or so of U.S. comparables. We call them comps. U.S. comps growth of 5% or more quarter after quarter after quarter and became sort of this rallying cry and investors and analysts became addicted to this number and it was part of the reason that the stock has had such a great run because it seemed that Starbucks was capable of this almost linear growth that was just going to occur and they had the entire globe to keep opening stores Uh, and U.S. despite other industries seeing slowdowns over the last five years, six years, uh, Starbucks was able to keep showing that growth. So what's happened is, inevitably, U.S. growth has slowed a bit. Uh, The companies had a couple of quarters this year where they haven't hit that 5% mark, but this most recent quarter, they did. If you're an investor, you sort of are rooting for management to get beyond that. We've seen Howard Schultz in his last uh, couple of quarters as CEO try to push back at the notion that the U.S. uh, store should hit this number every quarter. So that's a good sign. Um, You're looking for Starbucks, though, to be able to keep traffic in their stores flowing. At some point, and we don't know when this is, is it 10 years, 15 years, the the globe will become saturated with Starbucks stores. The density in the U.S. is is already, um, you know, reaching a point where you're having to go to secondary metropolitan markets to find growth. So as an investor, 
You want to see what Starbucks can do to keep driving traffic. And so far, they've been pretty successful. Uh, they have the seasonal um, promotions that everyone is familiar with, the pumpkin spice latte. They continually upgrade their uh, mobile ordering capabilities to get customers in-store, uh, continually to the loyalty program, and the product is addictive. So I think as an operations person, Kevin Johnson, the new CEO, part of his job is merely to keep that traffic flowing. And that's what you're looking for whenever you read through a Starbucks report. Yep. The th- big thing that uh, seemed to drive the market's reaction to the latest results, like you mentioned, um, them having to step down on guidance and uh, just the growth not quite being at levels that, uh, you know, frankly, investors have come to expect. And management having to kind of push back on that a little bit. But some other big developments that I think were relevant to the kind of the long-term uh, growth runway for this, com- for this company, uh, for example, um, something that f- uh, flew under the radar a little bit more as a result of the market reaction to the, to the quarterly results. Starbucks you know, spent $1.3 billion also to acquire the remaining half of its joint venture in China, which effectively brings that uh, entire Chinese business entirely into the Starbucks fold. And this is a big development because China is a huge market and a growing one for them. Uh, A lot of people believe it will become as important as the U.S. market in, in terms of the uh, the scale and the uh, profitability. Uh, keep in mind, I think that Shanghai actually lays claim to the most Starbucks locations, with about 600 of all the major cities that Starbucks operates in. And uh, something else that uh, I thought was interesting too, uh, in terms of when uh, Howard Schultz stepped down as CEO, um, he's you know still with the company, but his focus has kind of turned to the food and dining side. So food is actually about 20% of revenue for the company now, uh, growing in its own importance. And Schultz kind of wanted to take some of his time and be able to focus on developing these destination restaurants and and kind of premium experiences under the Starbucks brand. Um, So uh, in terms of uh, these other initiatives, both abroad with these other um, kind of categories in terms of restaurants. Um, what do you think, Asa? Is this enough, you think, to kind of satisfy investors as long as the company has some time to kind of get its legs and, and really just keep uh, you know, hitting on the numbers that they need to hit and growing, especially their presence in China? Depends on your holding period. Foolish investors tend to hold on to great stocks as long as is humanly possible. If you're that type of investor, then Starbucks is doing all the right things. The two examples you mentioned, Vince, are both pushing towards one goal, and that's to increase the operating margin of Starbucks. Over time, the the long term, owning its own uh, locations in China makes a lot of sense because that's a greater amount of margin that will fall to the bottom line. There was a period where Starbucks thought that a great mix would be 60-40, meaning about 60% of cell phone stores and 40% franchise stores would help them grow really quickly and and have done that in China. But if inevitably growth slows, what do investors then love? They love earnings. And we've seen companies historically like McDonald's, like Coke, that have been able to satisfy investors as their growth slowed by increasing profitability. So what you mentioned, Vince, this drive to acquire the rest of its remaining joint venture on the mainland in China um, is actually going to really help earnings far down the road. Same with moving towards packaged goods um, that they're selling in store aisles. 
to the premium roastery concept, which Howard Schultz is also pushing, that is to provide these, again, experiential purchasing experiences in beautiful roastery environments in major cities uh, and up our desire to buy a higher level of coffee, which drops a higher level of margin to Starbucks' bottom line. So if you intend to hold this stock past a three-year period, say five years, seven years, ten years and beyond, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that the new CEO, Kevin Johnson, shares these broad goals with Howard Schultz. And as I've said you know, just a few moments ago, he's an operations guy. He's uh, someone who can execute on this vision. So I think the company is in good hands and uh, has still has a bright future despite, I know we said we wouldn't talk about the stock price, but just so since Howard Schultz uh, announced he was stepping down, the stock is down about 7.5%. Not much at all. That was, um, again, since December of last year, but uh, not the typical growth Starbucks has had over the last few years. I think it will resume uh, for those who are patient. Mm-hmm. And just uh, to close out with one, I think, number or two, uh, a set of numbers that kind of puts uh, some of that um, international growth opportunity, especially in China, into perspective. And you look at this, um, what is currently the most important market for the company being the United States, and the number of locations they have. I think some are in the neighborhood of 14,000 locations just in this country, whereas in China, um, I think with their current uh, with their current base of about 2500 stores it just puts into perspective of kind of what the opportunity still exists there and uh, what investors can kind of look to and track the progress of as a key priority for the company going forward um, but otherwise it's all the time that we have today thank you asif for joining us thanks a lot vince uh, people on the program may own companies discussed in the show, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Uh, thank you, fools, for listening. Fool on. <laughs>